This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Welcome, brothers and sisters, and to all those who are listening and joining in on in the podcast of our, our study in Deuteronomy, the last words of Moses. We are up to uh, session 33, chapter 17, halfway through, as we're um, dealing and, and uh, learning from uh, the last speech of Moses as he is preparing the children of Israel to enter the land of Canaan and establish a humane, just society that replicates the very characteristic of God uh, as he makes his commentary to the Torah. And uh, I'm sure, as I have, and you guys have hopefully as well, learnt um, some many new things of a book that is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And so uh, we will honour the Lord with our prayers as we begin our study. Brother Neville, would you pray us in? Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that abounds towards us and the provision you make for us for these kind of Bible studies that span the world. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who is without bounds, would enter into our deliberations, guide our thoughts, and inspire our spirits, Lord. I pray you a particular anointing on Aaron as he shares his thoughts. So, Father, we give this evening over to you and look forward to your blessing in many ways. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right, guys. As is our tradition, we read the notes from last week. Uh, now, I try and include uh, our whole discussion. If I get it wrong, please add it in for people for the, for the podcast. So these are our summary of last week's discussion on Deuteronomy 17, verses 1 to 13. Idolatry was the ancient bugbear that constantly vexed the people of Israel. In Israel's sacred history, they had left Mesopotamia, the great Eastern Empire, and all of its gods in the family of Abraham. They've also left Egypt, the great Western Empire, and all of its gods under Moses. They are placed in the center of these two great empires revealing the true monotheistic God of the universe to the Gentiles that are around them. They must establish a just society reflecting God's character. And this remains the high priority for Moses. Separation from idolatry was therefore essential to the fabric of Israelite society as a theological witness to the nations that are around them. As a people of God, Divine punishment for idolatry could threaten the entire nation of Israel and its tenure in the land of Canaan. So initially, this chapter begins with Moses addressing the issue of unblemished sacrifices. God does not recognize second best as a true sacrifice, and we should be careful from withholding the best from God. Case in point, the book of Acts in Ananias and Sapphira. Only free will offerings were allowed to have a blemish, according to Leviticus 22:23, as they are consumed entirely by the worshipper. The concept here is theological. If we truly believe that God is the best, then only the best can be given to him. 
Due to the insidious nature of idolatry, those discovered in the practice are given capital punishment. However, drastic as both the act of idolatry and the death penalty associated to it is, there must be a burden of proof from two or three witnesses. Evidence must not be hearsay. It must be seen. Too often, we declare people guilty in our minds of offences without witness or visible evidence. As 1 Timothy 5 notes, do not hold people guilty based on gossip. Moses also says that the hands of the witnesses must be the first to cast the stones. Therefore, the witnesses need to be certain that what they have seen, because they must also be prepared to kill. Capital punishment is also a community event, as they too join in the execution. So we discussed the issue of John 8 and the adulterous woman, noting that Jesus asked for the official witnesses to step forward and on record say that they saw the adultery, yet hypocritically did not bring the man to punishment. He also linked personal sin to the nature of witness and the accusation of others. Now, law and order are important concepts for any functioning society. And in the new community that is to be established in Israel, the highest judiciary courts are to be religious courts. This judiciary is independent of the sovereign, with the high priest serving as chief justice. The highest judges are those with a knowledge of the Lord. The people of God are to be directed in their dealings with the word through the word of God. Therefore, Moses does not separate church and state. Moses has made clear in the previous portions of his oration that the Levites are to be a visible and important part of the fabric of Israelite society. Moses makes it clear that the people should act according to what they teach. There is no image of a secular state in the Torah. That's a reasonable summary. Uh, we also had a quite a fluid discussion on the issue of church and state. And I think we can all acknowledge while we live in predominantly secular societies, the Bible itself does not advocate such a position. Uh, and so we will pick it up now with the rules for kings. There you go. So this is uh, uh, being a monarchist. I love this 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 verse, uh, this this passage especially, um, as it's about the only passage that we ever get a rule for a king. Uh, so Deuteronomy seventeen, picking it up at verse fourteen. Moses says, "When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and then you say." Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. 
for the Lord has told you. You are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. All right. Now, last week, when we read the entire chapter, then I asked the question, so what was there that struck out um, from this initial reading? And our entire conversation all turned to the king. We actually didn't talk about uh, uh, sacrifices or stoning people or religious courts, although that's the end of what we discussed. So it is interesting that from this chapter, this is what stands out to us. Okay. So once again, brothers and sisters, what is it that stands out when we just do an initial reading of this text? What is it that jumps out? Aaron, one thing I've been thinking about is how angry Samuel got when Israel demanded a king over and above the Lord God. Yeah. And here, here it seems to be saying that it's okay now to have a king appointed by the Lord God. Yep. The, there is, this does seem, David, um, there does seem to be a tension between prophets and kings. In fact, every king has a prophet and they, they don't always work together. In fact, they are most, mostly assume an adversarial position. There is one king who does not have a prophet. Does anyone know which king? Which king of Israel does not have a prophet that comes and talks to him or gives him a word of the Lord or prophesies or challenges? Solomon. Solomon. Yep, there you go. Solomon is the only king of Israel that doesn't have a prophet. And uh, what's, what's the conclusion there? He's both. He's both. Yeah, you need one. <laughs> so I, I often I often joke with, with sometimes when I have a little study with rabbis, I say, hey, why does Solomon not get a, a, a prophet? And they go, well, the guy was so smart, didn't need one, did he? And you go, it was that smart, why do you have so many wives? Well, maybe he needed one. <laughs> typical, typical Jewish discussion. <laughs> All right. Okay. There's so, an attorney joke that goes with that. But go for it, Roddy. Well, it's short. Go uh, it, it goes like this. He who represents himself has a what for an attorney? A fool. So <laughs> he who represents himself has a fool for an attorney. Never yeah. represent yourself. Never represent yourself. There you go. And, uh, and the only king in Israel that ended up with no prophet is our, our, our friend Solomon. Um, and it's interesting that prophets arise during the times of the judges, although they're here in, in, in uh, uh, 
uh, in Exodus as well. Moses, Miriam, and Aaron are called are called prophets, and then they disappear as soon as the uh, monarchy uh, also dissipates. So it's interesting that God likes to bring the two together. However, having said that, the prophets I'm talking about are literary prophets. I'm not talking about social prophets because prophecy continues to exist right up until the New Testament and until the current day, um, as I'm sure most of you um, Aaron? Yep. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know if we, if we will say that um, Ahab had a prophet because um, he, I mean, he, he, didn't, um, he didn't get the prophet of God. He got the prophet of Baal that working with him. And apart from Elijah, that um, he considered as an enemy. So <laughs> uh, I don't know how, if we want to consider that um, Ahab himself had a prophet. Well, then, most, prophets, most prophets actually work against the king which is what you see with Samuel. Samuel's the prophet, and you want to appoint a king. Now, Samuel knows the Torah, so he knows that God has prophesied 400 years in advance that you're going to ask for a king. We might ask why it took him so darn long. But so is, is Samuel actually correct in actually getting angry? It's a good question because mm, yeah. from, the, from the text that we read in Deuteronomy 17, God in no way seems angry about appointing a king. In fact, he gives a specific rule. Make sure you choose a king that I choose, which means you're now in a relationship with God making a choice about a king. So... Samuel, Samuel seems to get angry and seems to set the direction of prophets uh, neg uh, neg against the king. Against the king, yeah. 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 Samson, just, just a thought there. Um, that Ahab, you could consider, had two prophets. Obviously, there was uh, uh, Elijah, but also Micaiah is a prophet who challenged Ahab. And he has a distinction of being described by Ahab as he never has says anything nice about me. <laughs> in one king's no, the, the, name, yes. the name of Ahab is a very interesting king. Ahab. Does, any, uh, does anyone know what that name means in Hebrew? Ahab. Ah is brother. Av is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ahab means my brother is my father. So that, yeah, yeah he, he's got a really poor lineage, okay? There's everything, everything's wrong. <laughs> Although another thing that really struck me in this um, passage we just read is yep. um, the opening text of the word, um, when you enter, or sometimes transmitted, um, translated, if you enter the land. You know, okay. it's, it's also the name of a parasha that we read um, later yep. in the Deuteronomy. Yeah, Kitavo, and um, it's uh, you, when you enter the land, and it's kind of give instruction of the mitzvah that the people are going to practice in the land. In fact, the the Hebrew people consider choosing a king as a mitzvah because it's a, it's it's like an instruction to do this mitzvah when they enter the land. You're absolutely right. You're given the command that when you enter the land, you should choose a king that God chooses. And the most bizarre thing is it takes them 400 years to actually fulfill this mitzvah. 
which we, we, we'll talk about it. Was like, why did it take him so long? Okay. Well, what happened to him? Okay. Okay, can I offer a hey, thought? Hey, Yvonne, how are you? Good. Okay. We're all Good, really happy that, you're, that your husband's home, okay? Are we uh, very happy? Excellent. Thank you so much for the prayers. Gosh, it's like the balsam of Gilead. It's like oil running down Aaron's beard. It's, it's, a, and it's our delight to hear that he's back and that he uh, does not have to take oxygen. That's great. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. He beat it like that president in America. That's right. <laughs> okay. Are there any other, um, anything from an initial surface reading of, of this command? Uh, mitzvah to to appoint a king. This is the only time in the Torah that we actually have this this mitzvah. No, no other place will mention this. And this is it. Aaron, sorry to come back to Samuel. Yep. I know I'm harping on it a bit, but when I look at one Samuel eight verse seven, mm -hmm. it says that uh, the Lord says to Samuel, "Don't get angry because they've not rejected you; they've rejected me." Correct. And so what we do is we then read that not that appointing a king was obviously a bad thing. That's what we, we, we then read with that. However, that goes completely against what we're just reading here. Because if we don't appoint a king, we're not going to have a Davidic king and we're not going to have a Davidic king messiah. So there's some beautiful tension in the Hebrew. Right? There's a beautiful tension in the Bible where God, so Mo Moses, God through Moses, is prophesying in advance that you're going to set up a king. And this king's going to have certain rules. And this king's going to you know, be appointed by God and blah, blah, blah. Vis-a-vis -vis the, the idea that God is your ultimate king, so please don't replace him with a man which is unfortunately something that we do. We, we look to our president, human, for our power and our strength and our security. And while they have a very important job to do on this planet, they are not God. And so we have to uh, balance the, the, uh, the role and nature of a monarch vis-a-vis -vis the role and nature of the ultimate monarch. It seems that um, the, there is huge tendency for the, for the king to be corrupted. Um, that's why so much warnings were begin to usher out, you know, it um, buttress the fact that um, absolute power corrupts us absolutely. Yeah, that's a, who, who actually said that quote? Who was that guy? Lord Acton. Lord Acton. Okay. Um, so let's all acknowledge that, um, as we mentioned last week, the Bible does not advocate for a secular state. It also does not advocate democracy, even though we love democracy. Okay. But let's be honest that Moses is not elected, Joshua is not elected, and the king that we're here is actually not chosen except by God. And so um, while we live in democracies and we love to try and preserve democracies, uh, that is actually a Greek idea and may not actually be the best one. Um, and so 
uh, I, I do know that uh, Winston Churchill, because we, we mentioned this quote last week, he, he said, there are many forms of government that have been tried and they will be tried in this world of sin and woe. Um, this is from one of his books that he wrote in 1922, that uh, as a believer in God, he, he called uh, this world is a world of sin. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all other forms that have been tried from time to time. And uh, he also then proceeded the next paragraph on to say, the best argument against a democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Okay? Once you actually have coffee with someone, you suddenly realize, oh, my gosh, you have the right to vote? This is terrible. We really can't do this. Okay? Um, but uh, Mark Twain once said of democracy, if voting actually made any difference, they wouldn't let us do it. And we, which gives you that whole good, you know, world power order that's behind control. Um, another quote, democracy must be something more than two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. That's a very good quote. Okay, it's from a guy called James Bovard. Democracy must be more than just two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner because that the democratic vote would mean that sheep gets eaten. So democracy must be something better. Abraham Lincoln, I love this one, said, I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. <laughs> and um, Excellent. Yeah. The difference between a democracy and a dictatorship is that in a democracy, you vote first and take orders later. In a dictatorship, you don't have to waste time voting. And so there's a few interesting little uh, fun around this concept called democracy, which we all live in and we pray for and we enjoy because it assists us we say, in the spread of the gospel, although the gospel is actually spreading faster in totalitarian regimes, which might mean that democracy is not as beautiful as we think that it is. So, having said all of that, let's have a look at the nature of kingship, which is in our portion today and is the way God as directing his people, whom he has brought out from the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire, put them in the middle, said, this is how you're going to shine the light to the world. All right. So looking at verse 14. When you enter the land, or if you enter the land, as some translations are, when you enter the land, again, reminding the Israelite people that they are not the original <coughs> inhabitants of Canaan. Right? They are, we've discussed this in, in the previous uh, uh, parts of uh, Deuteronomy. And the sacred history of Israel should remind them to be very humble and to acknowledge that the land of Israel is a gift. The land of Israel is an inheritance. The land of Israel is something that they are not born to. It is something that God is giving them. So when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you take possession of it and you settle in it. And so the assumption here is that, yes, there will be a victory. They will drive out the nations. There's some things we have to do with them. We discussed that in the previous chapters of, uh, of uh, uh, battle. Uh, they will settle. They will build buildings and uh, occupy cities and, and, and plant and, and thrive. Then it will become time to choose a leader. And it says, and you will say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Okay. And um, this takes 400 years to accomplish. Why do you think it took so long? Aaron, I get the impression that, uh, I don't know how accurate this is, but that God was prepared to give a whole series of different forms of government a chance to demonstrate to the people that actually none of them are perfect. So obviously the, the, the nation starts with the rule of the patriarchs and that's truncated by the slavery in Egypt. Then from Moses to Samuel, you have prophets operating really and, you know, in conjunction with uh, the judges. Uh, judges. And then you move on to the, the period of the monarchy, you only have kings. And then on the return from exile, the kings are effectively superseded by priests. So you have these different phases of national leadership, and in the end, they're all found wanting. Yeah. So could you imagine God in a portion like this, not talking about kings, but discussing democracy? Could you imagine what that would look like? Could, could any, anyone actually imagine a discussion that let's, let's all take a vote and sooner or later you might vote on the Messiah. That would be really kind of cool, you know. Um, it, it is an interesting thing that it could be that this form of government, which is not perfect, is ends up being the... Uh, the one that most represents the way God himself operates. And so uh, it, it yeah, does... Aaron, with, you know, in the book of Daniel, where, where Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of the statue of made of different metals. Yes. And it has a head of gold, on which Daniel says, is, is you, O great King Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have increasingly inferior metals, and they are... So when you move from the uh, Babylonians down to the Medes and Persians, they are run by an oligopoly. I mean, a group of people who, uh, not just a single head, but a group of, of aristocracy. And then moving down, uh, you know, you get to the Greeks, who have, their, again, a different form of government, and then to the Romans. Um, so they're all inferior. So it's the one who has absolute power, which in a certain sense represents the highest kind of um, leadership and the, the Lord has dealings with Nebuchadnezzar to straighten him out mm. so that um, he in some way, in some small way warrants that that title, you know, that representation mm. of the head of gold. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So, and I've heard it said actually that the form of government that is so much better than a, than a democracy is a benevolent dictatorship but the real problem is they're finding your benevolent dictator <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I personally am a monarchist. I grew up in Australia in, in the monarchy. And uh, when discussing with a lot of my brothers and sisters here who, who love uh, democracy, they say, you know, what, what, what's so good about, um, you know, kings? And I say, well, you know, you don't have to vote for them. You know, they just show up. And if you don't like them, chop their heads off. I mean, you get another one. So um, what you do is you vote for a president and you complain about it for the next 10 years. So uh, it, they're all, they're all got, they've all got issues. But uh, it is interesting that here we are on the plains of Moab. We've, we've been slaves. We've had time in the wilderness to sort which type of government we're going to have. We've already decided that religious is uh, jurisdiction is the way our society will manage its court system, right? The, the priests are going to have the, the say in the courts and it is going to be nothing to do with the sovereign, okay? They, and uh, which is the, 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 the no separation of church and state. And our, our actual head of state is going to be a monarch. Well, what type of monarch are we going to have? Are they going to be the ones like the kings that are around us. Um, and, and let's have a look at the passage because the answer is decidedly no. There's a particular type of king that God is going to have for his people. Okay, so uh, we enter the land. It is a gift. We take possession. We begin to do the things that we're supposed to do and, and the land will respond to us. It will grow and it will be fruitful and it will be rain from heaven and, and such. Time to appoint a king, although it does take us quite some time. It takes us 400 years, which we actually didn't answer that question. Let's try and do it now. Why do you think it takes the children of Israel 400 years to appoint a king? Moses is actually speaking prophetically here, but, but he doesn't know, maybe he didn't know that at the time. We've got to go through a period of judges, up, down, good judges, bad judges. And when you read the book of Judges, the good judges get one paragraph of he was a good judge, he judged for 40 years, and that's it. Bad judges get four chapters. And you wonder, you know, what's so good about the bad guys? But the Bible seems to like to tell you uh, the, the, the dealings of our, of our fallen heroes. Right. Aaron, I think I they, they get to the point where they are, they've, you know, they're just looking at the nations and seeing that everyone has a king and they don't. And maybe the spiritual level just keeps going down. And, uh, well, and the comparison. They have come out of Egypt and everything about Moses is antithetical to Egypt. Egypt worships death. Moses has no tomb. He has no, no one knows where he is buried. And everything about him is the God of life, right? And um, uh, he, everything about, and, and no one remembers the, the pharaohs, but everyone remembers, remembers uh, Moses. So, yes, they do look around. Everyone does have a king, but the king of Israel is going to be slightly different. Aaron, what was your comment? Um, so what I was going to say is when you study the, the storyline, of, especially of the, the Torah and then Judge Joshua, when Israel is under a leader, they don't always do so well, but they do better than they do in Judges. And then in Judges, when there is no central figure after Joshua dies, you see it go down and down and down and down and worse. And so part of the book's message just might be, you guys need a king. 
or else it's never going to go back up. Right. So what do you think is the character of the people that decides when they enter the land that they're not going to have a king? Like we enter the land, we make the conquest, we have a hero called Joshua, we could have made him a king. Okay, we establish Shiloh, we put the priesthood, we start the judiciary, we're doing well. Perfect opportunity to have said, all right, let's, let's start a constitutional monarchy. But they don't. What, I think, is, what do you think? Yeah, I think God, God is king. I know I God think, is king. I think like um, Bernardo mentioned, the 400 years um, they've spent in slavery, um, you know, it's like you can take this, the people away from Egypt, but you cannot take the Egypt away from them. So they, they had to do away with the slavery for that 400 years. And actually they spent 430 years and you will see that um, the Davidic king actually came on the 430th year um, that they actually came out from Egypt, you know. Correct. So I, I, I want to see it as a, as a kind of timing, uh, a moed for them to come into before they can really have the king that um, God will choose for them. Absolutely. The dates in the Bible always constantly link and beginnings and ends always occur in the same passage. 400 years in slavery, 400 years with judges, 30 years later, get ourselves a king. And, of course, when does Yeshua start his ministry? 30 years. Yeah. And the, the numbers are just beautiful, aren't they? The way they all work together. Yeah. So we're not 100% sure why our nation, who's been listening to this, Okay, so we got the people of Israel. Moses is speaking and the people are listening. Now, whenever you have a conversation, there are actually two conversations. The conversation that comes out your mouth and there's a conversation that goes in your ears, right? There are two different things. What you say and what you hear are two different things. And so we're not 100% sure why the children of Israel do not set up a king straight away. Okay? Everything we say eventually is going to be um, speculation. However, it does set up a very interesting pattern of numbers. Anyway, the point is God says, be sure okay, to appoint over you a king that the Lord chooses. So God's going to choose kings. Right. So what does that imply? Aaron, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know you have a good point, but I just wanted to go back 430 years in Egypt. And then what were the other two? I, I missed that. So we have 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and then we have 400 years as judges, but 430 is the uh, slavery year. So you end up with the 30 years of uh, where the extra 30 years come from. Well, Messiah starts his ministry at 30. And so also add in there for the 30 years, I believe that the Kohenim and the Levites can't step into their position until they're 30. I think that's correct, Aaron. I, that probably, I, that sounds familiar, but I'd have to double check it. I think it's 30 to 50. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah 30 to 50. The, uh, Bernardo, uh, your question yeah. is, is, is it because the high priest was supposed to be a king? No. The high priest is the, is the top judge. The chief justice is the high priest. So he's in charge of the judiciary and he's in charge of the courts, but he's not in charge of of the people. He doesn't summon them to war. He doesn't uh, call the banners for defense. He doesn't initiate uh, social policy. 
what he does is he teaches the word of God and people are supposed to obey him because it's the word of God. So we end up with a, um, a religious state, but uh, uh, under the headship of um, a priest like the Vatican, okay? but, um, but you wouldn't call him the monarch. Um, okay, so uh, what, what do you think about God appointing kings? Okay, because God says, be careful that when you do choose a king, you choose the one I appoint. I think that God is showing very clearly that even though they want a king which they think will be their ruler, God is showing he's still ultimately the ruler. Just like the high priest and the priesthood is all God appointed, God will also have their final say on the king. Okay, yeah, because um, the high priests are not, well, until they get bought and sold later on, but initially the high priest is also not uh, democracy comes from a particular tribe, from a particular family, and it's a lineage thing. It's a dynasty. It comes from the descendants of Aaron, right? Um, not anybody else. So we've got a quite yes. uh, interesting. But, but follow hello, through with hello, the Aaron. thought. Try, try and touch on the thought. Yeah. God appointed kings. Where does that lead you to? I think the whole point of it was to show the ineffectiveness because Israel was complaining and whining for one. And so then God wanted to let them see the results of their choices and the ineffectiveness of it so that, you know, his theocracy would be justified. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Um, my initial reaction is, uh, okay. no, but that's, <laughs> that's my initial reaction <laughs> is, uh, is, is this is, this is God speaking through Moses. Nowhere in this passage does God say anything negative about a king. What he says so, well, is, this, um, you choose one, I choose. But, but I'm, I'm going I'm to try one, 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 one more question and I'll just throw it out. Be sure to appoint a king that the Lord chooses. So what does that mean about the king? What, what can he claim? Is the Messiah? He's going to be the anointed yeah, it's one. Yeah, it's Messiah exactly. It's a Messiah. Okay. It's, a, it's a chosen Messiah. That's right. Yeah, it's the chosen one. But the the thing that ended up happening all through <laughs> Europe in the Middle Ages: divine right of kings. Right. Yep. They could actually appeal to a biblical verse that says, "Don't fight me. I'm chosen by God. How dare you uh, come at me?" You, you, you're, you're fighting the big guy. Be very careful. And it's a verse. That's what it says. And it leads you into the concept of divine right of kings, which causes all kinds of problems. But this is it. God chooses the monarch. Right? The one that we're going to have as a king is the one that God chooses. So, therefore, it's going to be a good choice, we would hope. But that presupposes that we ask God, to give us the king. That is also correct, Roddy. Yes, coming from the other side, we have to make sure that we are asking God which one is your which one is your choice. And how do we do that? Do we cast lots? Do we play rock, scissors, paper? Do we draw straws? Um, <laughs> how do we know? Um, I remember okay, that okay. Uh, when I when I was in England, I went to a pub in Oxford and I saw a sign that said that in this, in this bar in 1963, uh, Bob Hawke entered the Guinness Book of Records by, by drinking a yard of ale in 11 seconds. 
and um, which is the reason why we voted for him to become the prime minister. Um, you know, we've discovered who's going to be our leader because he can drink really well. Okay, not in the text, but obviously it's a sign from God. Right? We don't know how to choose the one that we uh, that that we know. Prophets end up joining in the show. We, we didn't. We didn't. There's there's no 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 method here that says the prophet will come and anoint, and uh, the first guy is going to be called Samuel. Just wait for this guy. We don't we don't get that picture yet. That's going to show up later, and so the prophet king relationship becomes very should have been very close. Um, unfortunately, becomes quite adversarial, and we'll have a look at that in the, in, in a minute. Um, because we have to be careful that God chooses kings. Even though God chooses the king, does that mean that the king is going to be good? Let's read. No. no. Let's read. Yeah, you're all right. No. Uh, let's read 1 Kings 11. Hmm. Okay. So here we have... Um, the story of uh, Jeroboam, Yerovam, Yerohavam, okay? So Solomon, his kingdom divides. His son is only going to rule two portions of the land and a complete non-Davidic king is going to rule the majority. Whoa, obviously Solomon did something so bad that uh, the majority is actually given away by somebody else. So let's read his story. So in 1 Kings eleven twenty six, Jeroboam, son of Nevat, rebelled against the king. Rebellion's always bad, but he does. He was one of Solomon's officials, Ephraimite. So he's an Ephraimite. He's not, uh, he's not from Judah, but many of the kings of Israel were Ephraimites. Hence the reason why many prophecies talk about Ephraim and Judah coming back together. Okay? Because the, not all kings were from Ephraim, but a majority. Okay? Uh, and it gives you, gives you the name of uh, his mother, who was a widow, okay? Zeruah. Okay? Um, okay, here is the account of how he rebelled against King Solomon, how he built the terraces and filled in the gaps in the wall of the city of the house of his, the city of his father David. Now, Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. So he's, he's um, quite skilled at his job. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Achiah, okay? Um, Achi, my brother is the Lord, okay? Achiah, great name for a prophet, the prophet of Shiloh. So the, the, we have the Shiloh is in operation, even though we now have a temple in Jerusalem. So Shiloh is still a place and still where a, 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 a proportion of the prophets are hanging out. So Achiah, the prophet of Shiloh, meets him on the way. He's wearing a special cloak. Why is that important? Tell us in a minute. The two of them were alone in the country. Achiah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing, tore it into 12 pieces, okay, 12 tribes. He said to Jeroboam, take 10 for yourself. This is what the Lord of, of the God of Israel says. I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give, it, and give you 10 tribes. 
but for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashterah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the Moab, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, who they burn children. So it's all pretty bad. And have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my sight, in my eyes, nor kept my decrees, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Verse 34. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of, of David, my servant, whom I chose and obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands, and I'm going to give you ten tribes. Okay, so this prophet's come, talk to Jeroboam, who's not a monarch. Okay, he's from Ephraim. He's got nothing really uh, regal about him at all, apart from he's really good at his job. And a prophet comes along and said, God's going to give you ten tribes. Woo! I will give you... Uh, verse 36, I will give one tribe to his son uh, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose you for my name. However, as for you, this is Jeroboam, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires and you'll be king over Israel. Okay, this is God talking through a prophet. If you do whatever I command, you will and you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes for obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did. I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. Wow. And I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. So the prophet, God, comes along to a non-monarch, non-regal person and says, I'm going to give you 10 tribes. If you obey me, you are going to have a dynasty just like David. Oh, my gosh. What does Jeroboam do? Does he listen to the prophet? It, it took half, half, half the advice of the prophet. He ruled over the people, but he did not do what the Lord wanted. Yeah, that's right. So, what's the good Jewish question? Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. They, they, go, they ask this question. What does God think he's doing? God sends a prophet. Does God not know what Jeroboam's going to do? This whole thing becomes completely superfluous. If God already knows that the guy is going to rebel, why bother telling us this? Yeah? And so Jewish people, when they, the rabbis wrestle with us, they go, what is God doing? You mean there was no one in all of Ephraim? Let's just take Ephraim as a tribe. You mean there's like maybe 100,000 Ephraimites. You mean not one of them would have actually listened to the prophet and said, yeah, I'll do everything God says. Absolutely. And, um, and then the northern kingdom would have been fantastic. And so, but that's not what happened. For some reason, God chose a king who was not going to do what he said. And we have to under, humble ourselves by admitting that we don't always know what God is doing. His ways are not ours. We, we don't know. You mean, was there somebody, a better king than Jeroboam? The answer is most likely yes. 
Did God need that person? Absolutely no, otherwise he would have chosen him. So we don't know 100% what's going on. However, so we are going to end up with bad kings, and yet they are still chosen by God. So we end up with this very interesting tension that God is creating in the idea of, of kingship. And not, if you, not if you follow the two-house theory. <laughs> it's all part of the plan. First, they got to go around the world. The gospel's got to go around and they bring it back. Yes. In some way, it's all part of the plan. This is the best way. But do I understand it? No. Um, But uh, do I I acknowledge it? Yes. But I do have a question. uh, Yeah, go right ahead, Roddy. Okay. Um, We've got 10 tribes up north, but we've got Judah, Shimon, Levi, and Benjamin. That are here in Jerusalem. Yeah. So, is it because of Joseph split Manasseh splitting twice is how they're counting the ten up, up north? I'm not sure that I understand how that works out. No, the the numbers get very confusing because there's more tribes than twelve, right. <laughs> and they keep and the lists keep changing. However, um, the recently argue that Levi was actually spread throughout the whole nation, so there would have been more Levites, possibly in ten tribes, than there would have been in two, although yes. they were concentrated at the temple. Yeah. But and and the two tribes on Jordan, the half tribe of Manasseh is a half of right. over here, but the two tribes on Jordan get wiped out, so you end up with them going away first. And uh, however, there's a, there's always a migration. There's the, the, there's always a, a mix and a, and a movement, uh, and as such, but. The point is God chooses kings. He doesn't always choose the ones we would choose as kings, but we have to make sure that we appoint them as kings. Um, so there is, there is an argument for the divine right of kings. So when we have a monarch, be very careful when saying nasty things about them, even if we don't <laughs> like them. So, okay. So uh, he must be from among your fellow Israelites, okay? We can't have foreigners over us, okay? All right? You've got to have naturalized citizenry, okay? Got to be from your fellow Israelites. Doesn't actually say which tribe, does it? Doesn't say your, yeah. you can only have a king from Judah, <laughs> right? Because our first king is actually from... Benjamin. From um, if Benjamin, yeah. Okay. Um, the, 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 the law for the king to come from Judah has been from Genesis when um, Jacob was blessing the sons in Egypt. He says um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, and so that's why we know that um, from Judah the rulership was going to come. Correct. Right from Genesis. Now, we know that from, obviously, our history reading back. But... Moses doesn't. Yeah. Moses doesn't say here, when we're choosing kings, make sure you choose them from Judah. Also, Saul was Benjamin, right? Correct. The first king, which is chosen by God and is still called God's anointed, is actually chosen from Benjamin. So we have no tribal delineation yet. We will get one. We will get the Davidic king from Judah, which will fulfill that prophecy back in Genesis. But at the moment... It's Aaron, still, yeah. Sorry, I might ask a question. That, that prophecy is saying the scepter shall not uh, depart from Judah. Is that not a direct reference to Messiah rather than to a king? 
It could be. I mean, it, it could be. And because the Messiah is a king, it could be, it could be both. But here you do, in, in Deuteronomy, you definitely have no tribal allotment other than has to be an Israelite. The king, now we get... And, um, sorry, one thing also to talk about um, Simeon. Simeon was not um, uh, if, uh, talking about the division of the country, the northern country and the southern country of the ten tribes and the one tribe. You know, the prophet said that you will take ten and one will go to David, but it should be remaining two because it yeah. all the garments to twelve. But we remember that also in Genesis... That because of um, Shimeon and Levi's their anger in going to attack um, the I've forgotten the the, the, the yeah. people they were staying with yeah. because of the Shechem for the rape of their, their sister. Gina. So they were um, there was there was a judgment there was a curse upon them that they will be spread about in the um, in the other tribes they will be lost kind of lost in the other tribe. I think that's what happened in um, in Judah that Shimeon was lost in Judah. So even yeah, though Shimeon, Shimeon was, um, and little, Judah was supposed to be the two tribes. Yeah. Shimeon gets a little, little bit of land yeah. around Beersheba. That's all he gets. And, and when you have a look at his tribal allotment, yeah. it's tiny. And, you th and yeah, he gets, eventually he, he, he gets himself swallowed up uh, in, in Judah. Although yeah. there is a king, I think, from, from Shimeon, or at least there are some judges. Uh, from there, but um, anyway, so let's have a look at the rules. I'm talking about oh. okay. Let's have a look at the yeah. Rules. I wanted to talk about um, 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 David and um, Saul. You know, in in I think in the book of Hosea, it says, "I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away with my wrath." So that king, um, talking about Saul, was not chosen. But we read in the book of um, Psalms, it say, "I've chosen my servant David." So we see there that. God actually chose this king. But even though the other king was given to them, um, from what it says in the book of Hosea, it doesn't look as if he was actually chosen. God said, I gave you a king in my anger, and I yeah. took him away well, in my wrath. Before we jump to conclusions like that, I understand what the text says. It's also prophetic. And the, and the prophets often talk in poetry. And so they can't, go against the Peshat of what you literally have in Samuel, which is God chooses Saul and then gets angry at David when David does something bad against him, right? Because uh, and uh, uh, you know, don't hurt my anointed one because he's it, it, still, it's still the anointed. So I understand what the prophet is saying. The prophet is talking in a very poetic language. We have to be very careful when, when taking that language and turning it into um, something. Uh, let's have a look at the at the at the physical rules of this king, which will be appointed by God. So the king must not acquire this is his first rule a great number of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has said, "You are not to go back that way again." All right. First rule is what? No horses. Yep. No, no horses. No, no multiply horses. Yep. What's so bad about a horse? Well, these are like, implication is they're war horses. They're a, they're a symbol of physical power. Mm -hmm. And um, and what's the enticement that we if we um if we get lots of war horses? 
to exert power over people or your neighbors or you know and win battles through um, physical strength yeah the people of Israel are meant to settle in the land of Canaan they are not meant to conquer the world right that it's a very interesting thing you they're, they're not meant to march up and take Lebanon. They're not meant to gather their armies and conquer Egypt and sock it to them for, for um, having us as slaves. In fact, God says, don't go back to Egypt. I mean, don't, don't go back there. I, don't, I, I brought you out of there. I don't want you to have anything to do with their gods. I don't want you to go to Mesopotamia and have anything to do with their gods. I don't, don't want you to go conquer the Hittites and have anything to do with their gods. You will represent me right in the middle of all of them and you will be a shining light to absolutely all of them, but not because you've got a big army. And, uh, and so first rule, first rule, don't get horses. Right? Don't have a big army. Where was the first place that uh, Jeroboam went back to? In verse 39 in 1 Kings 11. Yeah. 39. What does he say, Roddy? Go on. <laughs> back to Egypt until yeah. Slomo died. Yeah, he does exactly. He does everything you're not supposed to do. First thing. Yeah, first thing. Uh, if you obey me, I'll make you a dynasty. Sounds good. I'm off to Egypt. Uh, like good horses. Yeah, I grab, I grab some, grab some soldiers. Yeah, and um, because if if you go back to Egypt, there's that, there's that, the enticement to look at them and go, wow, look at your pyramids, look at your great palaces, look at your big Nile, look at all the food you can grow. Man, you've got the best cucumbers since sliced bread. It's in our Bible you've got good cucumbers. Uh, we're, we're staying here. And, um, and, and God says, no, no, that's not the way it works. And so first thing, don't have a big army. Aaron, can I just jump in here? And there's a really good quote from Isaiah 31 that touches okay. on the subject. It's as if... Isaiah's been reading Deuteronomy. So this is Isaiah 31, uh, we'll read verse, verse 1, I'll probably do. Um, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Yeah, look to God. And, Where was uh, that? Never. Isaiah 31 verse 1. So the prophet is chastising the people for disobeying and, uh, and instead of looking to God for their strength and security, running to, to, uh, to Egypt. Okay, so we're not to go back to Egypt. We're meant to stay out of them and uh, to shine our light. And we're not meant to have a rather large army, just a small one. He may not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of gold or silver. So there's two rules there. Okay. So how many wives is our king allowed to have? What? No, not many. Not many. Yeah, I know, it just says not many. That's the... Yeah. <laughs> we, we would love to say one. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not what the text says. All right. Um, it just says not many. We just, we just wish we could have a number, but um, poor old Solomon somehow convinced himself that a thousand was not many. Okay? Not quite sure where he came up with that number, or how he deceived himself, um, but he did. He had, and, a very, and, he had a very poor psychiatrist. 
Yeah, he, he didn't have a prophet. Now, if he had a prophet, I'm sure somebody would have come along and said, listen, uh, what, what's this? Once we get past 30, I think we're really starting to stretch the number many here, brother. brother. But uh, anyway. Hey, Aaron. Aaron, why the tension? I mean, you know, it's just Adam and Eve, one, Echad, you know, the unity of the male and female. Why this, um, this not many? It's kind of a... I know. We, it would be it would be a lot nicer if if you know we could if God would just say just take one wife and that's it. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't do that. Uh, it is implied, I guess. Um, however, where? Sorry. Where? Uh, unfortunately, later on in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, in the in the Hebrew Bible, unfortunately, we're we're not going to be able to find um, um, the the one wife idea. Many even even in the Book of Judges, um, Hannah, who gets the the who gets the prophet Samuel as her son, is wife number two. You know, and and no because one because of seems, children, yeah, because yeah, of children. And no one seems to chastise the husband for the mm-hmm. first wife. I mean, it's, it's please don't 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 get me wrong. I'm not advocating multiple wives. That's not what I'm doing. Okay, mm-hmm. don't don't please don't ever ever say that. I'm just you just you can't go to the Hebrew Bible and say here I've got a number. The even even, is, from, even from Genesis, Aaron. But the law first mentioned. Law first mentioned. Adam and Eve. Yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah. um, Aaron, even in yeah. the New Testament, he did not advocate um, one wife for everybody. You're actually talking about um, a That's bishop uh, or a That's leadership true. in it, the church. It only talks about the leadership uh, having one. Yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. true. You're absolutely right. The, uh, the one because wife in the idea, church of that time. Yeah. The one wife idea is actually a Greek-Roman invention. This is making me sick. And rightly so, rightly so, you I'm going to vomit. Birthdays are Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. law first mention. It was the yeah, yeah, yeah. Unity yeah. Of the like, if it was that simple, you know, you would mm-hmm. think that Moses would wouldn't have to write this many, would you? Or he just probably knows the perversion <laughs> of, of these there guys. You go. And there, he's yeah. like, okay, let, whatever. Let's let, let's interpret the text for him, shall we? Yeah. Can, can I make a point? Hello. Can I make yeah. a point? How about Abraham? If you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, maybe logically you'd think one wife. Except Abraham also had concubines. No, but no, what I mean, if you looked at the family line, you'd see that it would be best one wife. Isaac, Isaac. It would be more ideal to say just one wife, not. Yeah, Isaac, Isaac's the hero with one from wife. The logic, yeah. you would think my father did yeah. it wrong, so don't do that. Uh, that's right. There, there are, you could, you could argue as much as we do and we should we should probably all argue and debate and do all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day we <coughs> still have a text that says the king well he can't have many wives now why why are kings marrying lots of wives in the first place because they, they can afford it and they have the power there you go. They can afford it. And, they need their kids and to political. when they die. And, and, and uh, we need to set up, set up tragedies that Shakespeare can write about. I mean, we've got lots <laughs> of things going on here. 
And also the whole idea of, of political peace, like between the kingdoms yeah. and things There's, like that. That's yeah. right. There's political marriages. A lot of the, a lot of these, um, uh, a, a lot of these, <laughs> these, these, these wives are, are really trophy wives. You know, you, they're, they're not really wives as we would use that word. However, the caveat that comes in with this sentence is that these women, because there's lots of them, will lead you astray. Okay. Um, the, well, that's not a general principle. That's just an example in this case. Yes. It says he must not have many. And because if he does, the result is they will lead you astray. And what happens to our friend Solomon? Yeah. Jezebel, Jezebel, with, yeah, Jezebel. Well, he, with he ends up like he as as the the passage we read in First Kings. It lists a series of gods that are started to be worshipped in Jerusalem, and one of yeah. them is the god Molech. And the god Molech, what do you do for him? What's his sacrifice? Uh, children. children. Yeah. So our beautiful friend Solomon, who's talked to the living God and has incredible wisdom, is allowing child sacrifice. So that is, that is if, if you want to talk about your heart going astray, that's a very good example. And uh, so, so the, the God does not want the king's heart to go astray. So where should the king's heart be? King's heart should be with? With God. The Lord. Should, be with, should be with the Lord. Absolutely. His first love. You can have a few wives. I mean, what does God care? Um, okay. <laughs> Just you love me. There's the Lord. There's the Lord. Uh, Solomon. It's like, okay. You're going to go to bed now. And I time out. I don't want to know what you're doing, Solomon. See you in the morning. I'll take care of the borders. Yeah, brain. Eric, you can't go beyond what's written in Genesis. Yvonne's bang on Genesis. And then let me help Yvonne and Sharon. Do you know Please. that uh, Moses, Moses also had more than one wife? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. It's in there. Uh -huh. I, I don't think necessarily, go, like, I don't, well, anyways, you can't go beyond what's written. That's the general principle. That's what I believe. Yeah. Right? Love, yeah. love the first yeah. mention. Love absolutely. first mention. I'm so on that you, one. So, 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 Sharon, Yvonne, you're absolutely right. You can't go beyond what's written. But you can't have a second wife, Eric. You can't have me. That's what's written. Right? Anyway, the point is, the point is, his heart is to be for God. There is, the, there is the potential for our ruling monarch who's appointed by the Lord to go astray. <laughs> oh, my gosh, how can that possibly happen? But, but there is this problem. So God is putting in these checks and balances. Keep your armies small. Trust in me. Just don't, don't have your honor guard, sure. Have, have, a, have some nice horses that you can do a nice parade in. You know, it would be wonderful. Dress up and play, you know, uh, play dress up. Um, but but don't go conquering too much territory and, and be careful when making political alliances. You're meant to be lights to the nations. You're meant to be influencing them. You're not meant for them to influence you. Yeah, and, and I have a quick question. I'm sorry. Do you want to interrupt? Go ahead. 
and so and 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 subsequent with that, don't accrue accrue lots of gold and silver. Um, again, wealth is uh, is a problem, and 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 has been ever since the beginning of time. And um, I mean, one of the things that God is saying here is that He doesn't want His appointed ruler of a, of His people to be too rich. Okay? You know, what, what do we find in the Lord's Prayer? What's the prayer? Give me my... Daily bread. Yeah, give me my portion. Give me my portion for the day. Not more, not less. Just give me what I need. I mean, when I die, I'm not going to be able to take it with me anyway. Our um, manna, so yeah, our daily yeah, manna. Mm -hmm. Don't take, don't, don't, don't get too much because if you start accruing lots of silver and gold, you got some problems. Okay, these things are going to start to lead you astray. The enticement of wealth, the enticement of sex, the enticement of false gods, the enticement of power. <laughs> so the ruler that God is choosing has to reject all of these. So he is running countercultural to all of the kings that are around him. Um, which is the, which is going to be interesting that the, that the that the king that God wants okay of his people doesn't look like a king of any of anybody else okay he's going to have less soldiers less wives less money less <coughs> sort of influence but he'll be a king in in the image of God well now that's interesting after God's own heart okay, Aaron, so just a, a quick question what about Saul and Saul, Saul King Saul and King Solomon's eternal destiny David's oh. heart turned to the Lord he did Teshuvah he repented I mean they love him in, in, in Israel and he's he is the you know everything is David 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 flag of David King of David I mean, everything Solomon and Saul can we yeah. can we can I say it from well, the Bible? You know, well, from the Bible, <laughs> uh, there is a discussion about these characters, and um, and they I've mentioned before that the rabbis find the character of Saul to have some positives. Uh, I think we mentioned that before. I think, yeah, and um, and they they also discuss the question: Is Solomon in heaven? And um, and their conclusion is unfortunately no, because he engages in idolatry. And from the Sukkot festival, which we just celebrated, the, the idea is that you know we invite strangers into our tents because we might be inviting one of the seven holy shepherds of Israel. But they stop at David. It goes from Abraham to David and it stops at Solomon. And uh, and it's an incredible <laughs> warning for us. Is God merciful? Yes. Could Solomon have repented? Absolutely. He built the temple for crying out loud. You know, he's, he's, he's intelligent. Um, uh, is God the judge? Absolutely. Am I the judge? Absolutely not. Uh, so not 100% sure. Anyway, let's have a look at our king, who's now got a series of rules. Okay, Very limiting. Moses is limiting the monarch. I'm prophesying you're going to want one, but I'm going to limit him. He's going to be, he's not going to be like anybody else. We're going to have a limited king. When he takes his throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself. This is the best rule ever. Write for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law. Taken from Levitical priests. Okay. Um, how does your verse 18 read, uh, 
um, Neville. Um, it says, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Le Levitical priests. Okay, yeah, approved, yeah. In the presence of, before, okay? He's, he's going to, the king is going to, in front of the priesthood, write the Torah. Okay. It has that in the footnote here. It says, uh, from, from before the Levitical priests. So, yeah. Correct. Correct. It's in the presence of. And um, so basically the first ceremony of our king is a bunch of priests watch him write. Okay. And correct his spelling, one hopes. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and there he will read Genesis where there's one man and one woman and Yvonne will be happy. <laughs> Yes, well done, Roddy. Yeah, there you go. No, there you go. He will, if he's writing the stuff out, he's going to see all the patterns that God does. He's going to, he's going to watch what happens when you rebel. He's going to watch the judgment that God gives at the flood. He's going to watch the mercy of God as he, as he chooses Noah. He's going to watch uh, as, as Gentiles are the first people that offer sacrifice. He's going to watch uh, the history as he's writing down that we went down into Egypt. Look what happened. Look what happened when we lied. Look what happened when we tried to trick God. Look what happened when we, when we um, got angry and killed all the, all the people of Shechem. You know, he's going to learn... Lots of the ways supposed to. That okay, this is a question. That a number of expositors think that actually what the king is doing is copying the bulk of Deuteronomy, not the whole of the Torah. That is correct, and the and the and the reason that they say that is because in Hebrew it calls it Mishnah Torah, and uh, it says he will write out the Mishnah Torah. And what does the Mishnah Torah mean? It means literally the second Torah. Um, but the Septuagint comes along and actually translate that as the second law. But it, Mishnah can also mean the repetition. He can write it out, and as he's doing it, he's repeating everything. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean Deuteronomy, although you can. And it seems that the Septuagint translators ran with that. But there is also the possibility to say that, no, that's not what that means. Mishnah could just mean also double. He makes a double of the Torah, uh, okay? That the word, the word means a whole bunch of things. It means repetition, it means double, and it means second. Aaron, could, this not, could this not be the reason that this is the most um, quoted book that Lord Jesus uses? Say that again. Could this not be the reason that this is the most quoted book in scripture that the Lord Jesus uses. Yes, absolutely. It, it, uh, it, uh, this, it, the, it could be that the words of Moses become so important that, that actually this is the book that they write out. And so it means that the, the king is not writing out lots of Levitical rules. He certainly skipped Genesis. Sorry, ladies. And he might not know who Adam and Eve are. Okay. Just a question, um, Aaron, on, on this. You know, um, the scribes, when they, when they write the Torah, there is a very strict rule in writing the Torah. If you make a mistake, the parchment is condemned and you have to yeah. start. And it takes a quite, quite a while to write this Torah. Sure I mean, does. The, 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 the scribes are really trained for it. 
Um, does it really mean that literally it's the king that will sit down and write or it gets the people to write for him? That's a good question. Um, it, it seems to, first of all, it seems to imply that we've got literacy going on. I mean, at the end of the day, we have a literate culture. We have people who can read and write and we have written material. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Does it mean that the king sits down and for the first year of his, of his kingship does nothing other than write out the Bible? Right. I mean, yeah, it's like, what's your king doing? He can't see you right now. He's only up to Leviticus. He's really boring. <laughs> Something about leprosy, you know, he's like, yeah, you've got his skin diseases. He's really good at you for that right now. Um, but but we, there, in Jewish culture, you guys memorize the whole Torah. Like, don't you guys, is, doesn't in Jewish culture, don't you guys memorize, like, whole chapters? Yeah, lots of, really oh, yeah. Mem memory is a big deal. But he's not told to memorize. He's told to write it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the command. And, um, and so it could have taken him a while, Shimshon. It could, it could have been a process that he, yeah. that he does. Yeah. Um, not 100% sure. But out of the, the first initial rules, limit our monarch. The next rule, and this is all it is, is be very, very familiar with my word. Okay? My king, whom I choose, is going to know my word. He's going to have written it, studied it, discussed it. I mean, think about his writing. And when he comes to something he doesn't understand that he's right, who's standing in front of him? Levitical priests. He can start asking the, the questions. Yeah. Hey, guys, you um, does that really mean this, that we're supposed to actually, like, eye for an eye? What happens if the guy's only got one eye, you know? Um, you can end up some incredible discussions, <laughs> okay, that, that end up happening with our monarch who's now engaged with the word of God. Again, th there is no separation of church and state. You do not have a secular society. Our monarch is deeply engrossed in the Bible, okay? And, of course, what's the classic Bible in English, guys? What do we call it? James. King James Bible. Right? Monarchs classically involved in the text. Uh, in yeah. fact, Roddy, you sent me a very interesting little uh, article on the creation of the King James Bible. And uh, if anybody wants to know a good link... Uh, Ask Roddy. It's great. It, it is, yeah. Uh, I opening actually. Okay, um, so uh, the 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 you have yourself. Um, the the word of God is now our constant companion with our King. It probably takes him a lot more than a couple of years to to get through this. Okay, so he's engaged in this work. Who is supposed to be? Does this actually happen? That's a good question. It seems to fall apart after mm -hmm. Solomon. Okay. Um, in 19, it is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he can learn to reveal the Lord, revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words that are in it. Okay. So here's your Adam and Eve idea, even though he's already been told he can't have, he doesn't have to have, uh, he can only have many wives um, or not have many wives. Um, so, essentially, um, the fear of heaven is to be over this king. And what does the fear of heaven result in? Obedience. It's supposed to. 
One of the results or fruits of our faith is actually supposed to be obeying. He's supposed to read the sacred histories. He's supposed to listen to the commands. He's supposed to discuss with his little brothers and sisters, his Levites, okay, who are actually in charge of the judiciary. They're making all the discussions about the law. Okay, he's not. When he gets to this passage that says, you know, the the person who makes the final judgment is not the king. It's actually the high priest. We've now got ourselves a little checks and balances, and um, and. Uh, uh, it's, it's the word of God is actually meant to be his constant companion. And, um, and the word, the, the, he has to carefully obey these words and its decrees because a careful reading of the Bible will reduce his potential, his potentialness to sin. Okay. And so um, why is the Bible useful? Why should we have Bible read in schools? Why should we be doing this? Because it reduces sin. Okay? What we do is when we have a secular society and we take the Bible out of schools and we take the Ten Commandments off our walls, uh, what sort of society do we end up with? No more morals. Sorry again? No more morals. Yeah. North America. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, we... we the, the the word of God is is quite clear. You know, I want you, you when it's time to set up a king. Okay, I'm not I'm not going to say anything bad about our king or whether it's a good or a bad thing or all that kind of stuff. Here's what you do: you limit him. He's not very powerful. He doesn't get expansionist. He's careful with his family life. He's careful with his uh, his his uh, desire for property. In fact, he should read a Bible that says, uh, thou shalt not, you know, be jealous of your neighbor's big screen TV. And then he's going to make sure he copies these rules because I want the fear of heaven over him. I want him to, to follow my decrees and walk out uh, his faith. And that will reduce sin in his community. And, uh, and, and then, the, then Israel will be the flowering image of the character of God. Now, did that happen? Is it going to happen when you finally got a king that's actually going to keep all the commandments, which is, guess who? Yeshua in Jerusalem. It's going to be a very nice kingdom indeed. And um, anyway, this these are the rules for a king. Not many. Got 613 rules for everybody else. But once you get to a king, you've got like four. Okay? Limit him and then give him everything. Okay. Make sure he's uh, writing out the Bible. And uh, he is not to consider himself better than our fellow Israelites and or turn from the law to the right or the left. So what's another quality of our hero? Humility. Yeah. He, he has to be humble. He cannot think, hey, I'm the king. I can do what I want. You are the king, absolutely, and we will salute you and do all the things we're supposed to. But remember who put you there. Don't think you're better than me. I'm just as valuable to God as you are. And, uh, and so one, one aspect of, uh, of kingship, one aspect of leadership, let's also say that, uh, should, be, should be humility, is that um, the heroes of God are humble people. They, they do not think themselves better than than themselves, and so for us, brothers and sisters, you know, when 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 we are dealing with our brothers and sisters uh, in the world, 
if we do happen to have positions of authority, and some of us do, then we have to remember that that is we are, are not meant to, to lord it over. We are meant to be servants. We are meant to be humble. In fact, what did we see our king doing with his disciples? Washing them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and you can see that completely being set up here in Deuteronomy. He is not to think himself higher than anybody else, and uh, and so we are looking for a servant king, a king that yeah. does not have a huge amount of power, that does not have military alliances or have the influence from pagans. In fact, his community is going to be influencing them. He is not going to be incredibly rich. In fact, he's actually going to be rather humble and he's going to spend his days concentrating on the law of God. And so the community that Moses is trying to set up in the land of Canaan is one that has a judiciary of people that read the word of God, that has a king that reads the word of God. And then has a people that are now reflecting the character of God because their leadership, both priests and kings, are reflecting and teaching and, and emanating the very word of God that's trickling down uh, or should have to, to the community. This is the type of society that Moses is trying to instill. This is the only time we talk about kings. And, uh, and we're only given a few simple laws. The blessing is that if he does do these things, there's always a blessing. Okay? When there's, 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 there's never a obey God and then we'll see what happens. Right? There's always, okay, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. You know, follow the Lord and you will be, and, and God will come and live with you. Right? There, there is always a positive blessing that you see in the New Testament and also in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, and then he and his descendants yeah. they will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. There is a blessing, okay, for for doing what God says. There is a blessing for listening to the words of the Messiah and putting them into practice. All right, Aaron, we saw um, Jezebel did exactly the opposite of this. You know, when he yeah. instructed um, Ahab, "Are you not the king? Why will you be sad that um, you know when you were not given the vineyard?" Oh, yes, uh, just, yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah in Nabo's vineyard, yeah. He said, are you not the king? So why should you be going around with, um, you know, a long face? I mean, just wait, I'm going to get you this uh, land, you know. Yeah, you know should, because yeah. she, she wanted him to feel as a king of a, an oppressor, somebody that has the, he should be bigger than every other person in the society. Yeah. And he shouldn't have. He, he, Naboth had the complete right to turn to a king and say, you can't have that, they're mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And the king just goes, oh, yeah. all right, yep. Because they're both the same. <laughs> Landowner. Yeah. Yeah, Solomon, unfortunately, breaks all of these rules. He accrues many horses. He builds entire cities full of his soldiers. And he expands the kingdom. I know, I know everyone likes to say that Solomon was a peaceful king. He didn't go to war. Well, true, he didn't lead his armies, but his armies went out. Okay, uh, uh, he expands the the borders of Israel are the largest under Solomon. Okay, he expands into Syria. He expands further north into Lebanon. He takes large portions of the Sinai, and uh, and he hops on his little boats down in Elat, which was not a land given 
according to the initial territory of uh, the tribes and then sends his fleets out to mine gold all over the place and, and he makes himself quite rich. So he gets rich, he has a very powerful army, no one can beat him, and he unfortunately accrues uh, lots of women and seems to have forgotten the word of God. And he doesn't get a prophet to come along and, and correct him. Uh, so he Aaron, breaks. Talking about the talking about the border, um, don't you think he was trying to get to the greater Israel border? He could um, have been. The one that was promised to Abraham um, from the beginning. He could have been. Yeah, he gets the most that we ever get. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he could have been. The, the, the text doesn't say why he's expanding his territory. It just, it just gives a few verses that mentions how his armies go out and, and, and win. It actually doesn't even give you the name of his general, I don't think. Um, anyway, um, uh, there you go. So we have, we do have our rules for our king, and uh, and uh, it, democracy is not an inherent uh, part of the Bible, although some of us do treasure it. I personally am a am a monarchist, and uh, and we do end up um, with. The, the no separation of, of church and state. Faith is meant to be a, a part of our lives that we actually take into the world, wherever that is, and, uh, and to modify it and shape it and, uh, and to expand upon it, uh, hopefully influence it. So any other questions about our, our rules for a king? I actually have a, a, a question, but it doesn't doesn't have to do with the, the topic today, just out of curiosity. Is there no parashat uh, uh, this week? You know, I know, you know, that whole idea of, you know, the 70 faces of, of, of Torah, Shavim, Panim, La Torah, and going back and, you know, the cyclical. Is there not one because of Simcha Torah this week? Yeah, Simcha or I just Torah, didn't see it. No, it seems I mean, I guess, which was, which was this weekend, but... Is there no parashat this week? Yeah, there is. You finish Deuteronomy and you begin Genesis in the same parashat. Oh, so so it's Genesis. I thought that was this coming weekend, like on the Saturday. Yeah, it is this week. This week is that. Week. <laughs> yeah, the the, the parashat for the Simcha Torah, you have to conclude the last part of right. um, Deuteronomy. De Deuteronomy, and you, yeah. And you, and you read the first part of um, Genesis just to continue the yearly cycle. But yep. the next um, Shabbat, you're going to start um, Rishit. Um, yes. officially. Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's officially. true. They do a little bit. Yeah, officially, they do a little yeah. bit of Genesis. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Often in the parashah, there are, during the Torah portion readings of the year, there are times when you actually reread the same thing two or three times. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay. I mean, um, the, the Bible's the Bible. <laughs> Repetition is good. Um, so for those that, uh, uh, you know, uh, like myself, good creationists. There you go. Um, this is our opportunity to, to discover that. Oh my gosh, God made the world. You know, lo and behold, and um, yeah, good fun. Um, and uh, for those that don't uh, hold to that view, that's uh, okay. And we'll just sit down, have a bottle of wine, talk about it. So, awesome. All right, guys. Thank you for wrestling uh, with the rules for a king. We have a king, and this uh, we acknowledge that these kings are God's agents. He is the one that appoints them. Um, they, in some parts of the Psalms, they are even called sons of God. 
okay, that uh, they have a connection to the Lord. They have a connection to the Lord. Why? Because he actually appointed them. Okay. And so kings are often called sons of God. And, of course, King Messiah is, of course, the son of God. See how that all connects. They're meant to rule with justice and righteousness, which is exactly what the Messiah is going to do. They're going to read the, the, the book of the law. They're going to read the Torah. I think it's going to become part of their life, just as exactly as what you see the Messiah doing. He, he does the entire uh, Torah himself. And uh, they're expected to observe uh, the commands and they're expected to limit uh, themselves as they, are, as they uh, reflect the character of God to the nations that are around uh, all right. Great. That's right. interesting because Jesus, at his trial, they said, Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Yeah. That was the final sort of verdict and the deciding factor. For, for Pilate, Pilate even didn't want to do it, but he, he, but he oh. acknowledged it by yeah. writing as the charge, the, the king of the Jews, which was also his um, yeah, real title. All right, guys. So who wants to go live in an absolute monarchy? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. We don't have to vote for Jesus. Okay? No, no more of these silly elections or campaigning. All right, we'll just... yeah. Yeah. But if you don't follow him, you've got a problem. <laughs> yes, you during the millennial reign, yeah, we are going to have the monarch sitting in Jerusalem and, and ruling we'll over it. the and we'll nations. see what it's supposed to be like. We'll go, oh, is that what yes. that meant? Yeah. It's like four rules that you gave the king. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, yeah. thank, hey, you hey, Aaron. Aaron. thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. One more question, Aaron. Any idea of, um, I've heard that people have said during the Messianic era, there will be opportunities for, for uh, salvation any or and then I've heard no. Any any thoughts on that? Uh, well, my thoughts are I don't know. Other than there seems to be a life cycle of birth and death uh, in the in this this whatever the what we call the millennium the, the the reign. There seems to be an opportunity for the enemy to to entice people away for for he gets released and then seems to do one final um, conflict. Uh, if if he was powerless, wouldn't be much of a conflict. Um, so it, and and people and I don't understand why people can can die because uh, in this in this realm, um, the weather cycle still seems to be the same. There's a it's all very complicated. Um, I don't have any of the answers other than I'll I'll see it when when, when I see it with you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't have to wait for Jesus to be king because he's king right now. Yeah. And, uh, and that's also a, a beautiful Amen. thing is that you and I, at the end of the day, whether we're living totalitarian regimes um, or not, uh, is that we, we are all monarchists. We, we do all acknowledge a, a sovereign ruler. And, uh, and our sovereign ruler has given us uh, a beautiful kingdom to live in. And, um, and that's a great thing. It's a kingdom that, that, that reflects his word because the king reads his word. Uh, and our king wrote the word. So it's a, quite a good king to have. All right, guys. All right. All right, Toda. Thank, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.